Please open your Bibles with me to Luke 15. We'll read verses 1 to 10. Luke 15, 1 to 10. Here we have two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then later we will study the lost son or the prodigal son. That takes up the rest of the chapter. But first, the uh, first 10 verses, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. We can summarize this section as well as the next parable, all three parables, as describing repentant sinners. Repentant sinners. Verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll teach us what it means to be a repentant sinner. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand this truth, and bring us all to repentance. Bring us not only to initial repentance, but daily repentance. May we desire this as a virtue of the Christian life. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we have these two parables. The first one is the lost sheep in verses 1 to 7. And Jesus, again, is in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees, but as well, he's in the presence of sinners. Here in verse 1, they are called the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now, all of them, it says, all, a big crowd of them, the tax collectors and sinners. Now, these people were notorious people. They were considered notorious, especially when you think of the tax collector who is likely, in some of these cases, a Jewish person, a Jewish man, taking money from the Jews, his own countrymen, but taking more than what he's supposed to take. He takes some for the Roman government because he's employed by the Romans, but he's going to take more than he should take because he's a thief, he's a crook. He takes more than he should and he pockets the rest. So he exploits the people. And because of this kind of exploitation, which was a notorious kind of crime, everybody knew about it, everybody knew there was an injustice, but they had no means of recourse. They had no means to uh, of redress to uh, deal, deal with this matter of justice. They had no power to do so, so everybody knew about it. This is the kind of open and notorious sin that is in the profession of the tax collectors of the day. As well, the sinners. 
Now, it simply says the sinners. And it doesn't mean that there are certain people who sin and nobody else sins. He doesn't mean it that way. This expression is regarding those who have blatant sin, those who have uh, notorious sin. They have sin that is exposed and is very egregious and heinous in the eyes of people commonly. Most people have some kind of a conscience that prevents them from flaunting and exposing their sins, right? Most people have some kind of conscience, at least a fear of punishment and shame. They have that that prevents them from doing that. But then there are some people who have been so seared in their conscience, so hardened in their heart, that it doesn't matter, they just do it openly. And that's what is meant by the sinners. The sinners. An example of that within the same chapter is in the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, where it says in verse 13, what kind of a sinner this man was. It says in 1513, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Squandered his estate with loose living. He received a lot of money from his father, went away to a distant country, and squandered it with loose living. Well, what, the, what does loose living mean? If it's not obvious, verse 30 makes it obvious. Chapter 15, verse 30 says... But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. What is loose living? Loose living or squandering the money is spending all the money with prostitutes. That's all he cared about, and that's what he did. So this is a blatant, open kind of sin, notorious kind of sin, and that's what's meant by this expression, the sinners. It's not saying... Some people sin and others don't, but it's talking about blatant and open, heinous sin. Well, these are the kinds of people who are coming near him. And it says all of them did, which means a bunch of them did, right? And when a bunch of them did, for what purpose? For what purpose did they come near Christ? They came to listen to him. To listen. That means that they wanted to hear the word of God. They must have heard that Jesus preached forgiveness upon repentance. They must have heard that the mercy of God extends, the grace of God extends, the love of God extends to those people who turn away in repentance when they hear the word of God. They must have heard that. We know that to be, to be the case from elsewhere in Scripture that the tax collectors and the harlots came into the kingdom of God when John the Baptist preached, but the scribes and Pharisees would not have remorse over their own sins. They wouldn't even see that these sinners were received by God. They did not want to be received by God. Matthew 20, 21, 28 says that. So this is the reason they're coming to Christ. They're coming to listen to his word. They're not looking for a handout. They're not looking to be, have their bellies full. They're not looking to be applauded. They're not looking for any of that. They're coming to listen to him. So they're coming for the right reason, to hear the word of God and to consider and to contemplate their need of repentance, their need to turn from their sins. Now, this is what they do. But notice verse 2. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. 
saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes, they come to grumble. They come to murmur. They come to complain and gripe about what they see happening. They say that Jesus is so bad, so wrong, so satanic, that Jesus would want to keep company with repentant sinners, or at least those considering repentance. This is their gripe. They are so blinded by their own hypocrisy, they're so blinded by their own sin, they, instead of repenting themselves, they grumble against Christ because Christ keeps company with tax collectors and sinners. See what's going on with them. Now, we know that this is typical of them. For example, chapter 14, verse 1. 14, verse 1 says, Luke 14, 1, And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. They were watching him closely. They use their eyes, instead of using their eyes to glorify God, they use their eyes to criticize God because they're criticizing the Son of God. They're looking for a way to criticize Him, to grumble at Him. This is characteristic of false teachers. False teachers will typically use every opportunity to grumble at what God does, to grumble at the Word of God, to grumble at the messenger of God, to grumble at the grace of God. They will do that. Jude 16 says, Jude 16, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. False teachers do that. Pretenders do that. They grumble, they find fault, they follow their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people, they flatter each other, they pat each other on the back for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's the way it is. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. He is confronting these pharisaical grumblers or grumbling Pharisees. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, notice, it is good and right, though they criticize it, in the eyes of God, it's good and right to keep company with interested sinners and especially with repentant sinners. Interested sinners, sinners who are curious, sinners who want to hear the word of God, sinners who realize their own state, that their own guilt has overwhelmed them, they know how bad their sins are, and they want reconciliation, they want forgiveness, they want to overcome their sin. That's what I mean by interested sinners. And then repentant sinners, those who are actually calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, they're actually wanting to turn away from their sins, of course we should keep company with them. That's the kind of person we want. We want people like that who are repentant, who are very much wanting to enter the kingdom of God because they know they are bereft of all virtue. They know they're bereft of all grace and goodness. They're all, they are bereft of all holiness. They lack it all and they realize it. We want people like that. That's the kind of humble man God seeks. That's what Jesus was doing. We have to clarify, however, Jesus was not in the company of sinners keeping his mouth sealed and shut while they are committing their sins. 
for example, he did not go to the local bar while he saw men and women at the bar getting drunk, using foul language, taking God's name in vain, cursing and full of bitterness and things of that nature. He didn't go there and just sit there and say, John, you're a swell chap. Mary, you are a wonderful woman. While they are getting drunk and cursing God. He didn't do that. He didn't go to the casino. He didn't go to the local casino and say, hey man, uh, or with his friends or with the sinners and say, hey, let's go uh, try this machine over here. Let's go try the, 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 the wheel. Let's go try it out because I, I want to connect with you. I want to do something together with you. He didn't do things like that because gambling is a sin. He didn't do things like that in the company of sinners. When he was in the company of sinners, the purpose was for them to listen to him. Isn't that what verse 1 says? They were coming near him to listen to him, for him to preach the word of God to them. That is the reason why he kept company with sinners, interested and repentant sinners. Not to condone their sin, not to join them in their sin, and not to avoid talking about their sin, but in order to address their sin. That's why he kept company with them, and he even ate with them. Verses 3 to 7. He illustrates how important this is, or why it is necessary. Verse 3. And he told them this parable, saying, One man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, verses 3 to 6, he announces the parable, and then he applies it in verse 7. Now, when he announces and explains this parable, he says, verse 4, What man among you? So he brings it close to home, and he makes it inescapable. He puts them in a trap. He puts his accusers in a trap, saying, what man among you? Can you imagine anyone among you who would do this with his prized possessions, his sheep, his uh, wealth, because with the sheep is wealth, with the sheep is income, with the sheep is food and clothing? So what man among you? So they will have nothing to say. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, if one is lost, one is gone, because they have to count them every day, right? They have to count them every day, passing through the, by the rod of the shepherd. He counts them every day, and when he counts them, one is lost, before he um, puts them inside for protection, right? So, when he has one that's lost, does he not care enough? He has become, he's a good shepherd, so he is endeared to the sheep, right? The sheep know his voice. The sheep understand him. They listen to whatever directions he gives them. They don't recognize the voice of others, but they recognize his because they all belong to him. They are accustomed to hearing his voice. So, one is lost. What does he do? Does he not leave the 99 in the open pasture? Of course, not unprotected. There are other shepherds and other uh, workers there to help protect them. But he leaves them because he wants to go and find the one. He doesn't send 
one of his servants, one of his workers to go find the one, he goes and finds it. That's how important the one is to him. He goes and finds it until he finds it, it says in verse 4. Which means he's not worried about water. He's not worried about food. He's not worried about what time of day it is. He's not worried about the bears. He's not worried about the lions and the wolves. He's going out there to find it. He's going out there to find it until he finds it. No matter what, uh, what labor it takes, what danger it takes, he's going to go find it. But then when he does, verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He is a very happy man. He is overjoyed in finding it and places it on the shoulders, on his shoulders, his own shoulders, because he is so happy. He cares for that sheep. He's very happy he's found that sheep. And not only is he happy to find the sheep, he doesn't keep his happiness to himself. This is how happy he is, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. He calls together his friends and his neighbors. Presumably, they heard that one of them was lost. Probably, they heard about the kind of extra effort he went to go find that one sheep, the pains that he took to go find the sheep. So now they hear that it's found, and though they were anxious, now they're not anxious anymore. They are happy. They're happy with him. Because he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I have found my sheep which was lost. So, that's the kind of joy that should result when a lost person comes to Christ. When a lost man is found in Christ. Verse 7. Jesus drives it home. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's now unpack this verse. There are a few things to clarify. I tell you that in the same way. Jesus, the authoritative teacher, the authoritative and pure and good teacher, he is applying this He's driving it home, and he says, in the same way. So what is the application? The application, in the same way. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, and all other people like this, who are self-righteous, they have hypocritical righteousness. They, they may not practice these notorious sins. They may not go to the prostitutes. They may not go... Oh, to the, the gambling joints and they may not go to the bar and get drunk over there in front of all the people. They don't do that. But inside and secretly in dark places they find a way to sin and yet they present themselves as not being like that. This is what I think he means when he says that in the same way there's more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, everybody needs repentance to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't mean it that way, that some people need to repent of sins and others do not need to repent of sins. I don't think he means it that way. I think what he means, as he's applying it against the Pharisees and for the benefit of the tax collectors and sinners, what he means is, that the 99 righteous persons are 
hypocritically righteous. They are self-righteous, and they think they need no repentance. That's what he's addressing. He's saying, there's no joy in heaven over these self-righteous people who don't repent of their sins, who think they don't need to repent of their sins. There's no joy in heaven for that. But there is joy in heaven over what? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over these other people. Okay, it's better, it's better in a civil sense, in a societal sense, that everyone is not a serial murderer, a serial adulterer, and a, a serial thief, right? It's better for our society in that way. And it's good to an extent. But for the salvation of the soul, isn't it better for everyone and anyone, whether he's a notorious sinner or not a notorious sinner, for anyone and everyone who hears the gospel to save his soul by repentance and faith in the gospel? For eternity, because the soul is saved for eternity. The one who avoids all of the major sins openly in society, he's still lost and he's still going to hell. So the more joy has to do with the soul that is saved for all eternity. That's what he's talking about. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's continue in the next parable and then we'll also make a few more points. 8 to 10. Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Man or woman. The kingdom of heaven is not only for men, but it's also for women. It's not just for women, it's, but it's also for men. Remember, whatever rank and, and strata of society one is, whether one is a king or a commoner, whether one is a male or a female, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, wealthy or poor, it doesn't matter. A gross sinner or not so gross of a sinner, the kingdom of heaven is for everyone who repents and believes in the gospel. So this is perhaps why he illustrates with a woman. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Yes, small coins. If she has a silver coin, if she has lost it, what does she do? She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully. She does all these things, also showing diligence, also showing desperation, showing that she is very diligent and laborious in making sure she finds that coin, because it's precious to her. This is also what the shepherd did with the sheep. He was diligently looking for the sheep. Here she diligently, carefully searches for the coin. And she does the same as the shepherd. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. There too, she can't keep her joy to herself. She must share it with others. Shares it with others. Presumably they heard of the lost coin. Presumably they were praying for her. Presumably they were also anxious for her since they were her friends and neighbors. So now... Their anxiety is turned to joy. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. A lost uh, coin is now 
found. So she also calls on everyone to rejoice. And Jesus says in verse 10, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's now explain. It says more joy in the presence of the angels of God. And verse 7 also says more joy in heaven. What does this joy mean? Who's joyful in heaven? I believe we may take it in two ways. And I think both are true. In two ways, this is perhaps why Jesus does not specify because he knows both of these are true and there's no need to explain, at least while he's illustrating this. What are the two truths that he means? I think the first truth is that the, the joy is in God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there is joy over one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven. Why do we say that? Isaiah 62, Isaiah 62 and verse 5. Isaiah 62, verse 5. God is joyful here. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And who is he describing? He's describing one who is married to him. He's describing the church, the bride of Christ. God rejoices over the bride of Christ. Another example is Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, 19. Isaiah 65 and verse 19. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. God is joyful over his people. He takes away weeping and crying from them, and he rejoices over them. And one more place is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. If you go to Matthew, go back a few pages. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God himself is rejoicing over his redeemed people because they believe in the gospel of Christ. He exalts over them with joy. He rejoices over them with shouts of joy. This is why there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. God is rejoicing. I believe also the angels rejoice. The angels rejoice in the presence of God because they know God is pleased because a sinner repents. How do we know angels rejoice? Luke chapter 2 Verse 13. Luke 2, 13 and 14. Luke 2, 13 and 14. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When God 
acts by bringing Christ into the world, the Father and the Spirit. When they bring Christ into the world, the angel and a multitude of the heavenly host praised God. They praised God. Of course, when they praise God, they must rejoice in God. Another is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, 1, uh, verse 12. 1 Peter 1, 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. In this context, he's explaining our salvation. The prophets and the apostles preach the same salvation. And then it says in verse 12, 1 Peter 1, 12. It was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Notice there, it says about this salvation and everything that happens on the earth, it says things into which angels long to look. They long to look into these things because they long to rejoice because they know God is pleased when salvation occurs. Angels long to look. And finally, we see angels in Revelation chapter 5 rejoicing in Christ and in salvation. Revelation 5, 11. Revelation 5, 11. 11 to 14. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So who is rejoicing? God is rejoicing and the angels are rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Now, let's also consider what it means to be lost. What does it mean to be lost and then found? To be lost means one is hopelessly dead in his trespasses and sins. He is hopelessly, powerlessly left in his uh, dead sins and transgressions against God. That's what it means to be lost. How do we know this? We know from Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There we are described as sheep, and all of us have gone astray. All of us has gone to, uh, in our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So we are lost sheep, we have gone our own way, we are hopeless, and just like a sheep does not find his way back unless the shepherd finds him or, unfortunately, the wolf finds him. That's the end of it. It takes the shepherd to find him. 
A sheep does not find himself. Just like a coin does not find himself. It takes the man or the shepherd to find the sheep, and it takes the woman to find her lost coin. We do not find ourselves. We do not escape our lostness ourselves. God has to search for us. God has to change us and find us and bring us out from our predicament. And how do we know how lost we are? Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, describe our lostness. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Who were we? We who are now found. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What dead man makes himself alive? None. And even the prodigal son, which we will study next time in Luke 15, he is said to have been dead. He was dead in his lost condition, in his sinful condition. He was dead. And so that's the way we were. And as well, verse 2 says, we walked according to the course of this world. So we were worldly. We were earthly and fleshly. We were carnal. We did whatever our flesh indulged, whatever our flesh wanted to do according to the world. And then we lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's a description of Satan. Satan is the god of this world, the ruler of this age. That's the kind of prince or ruler he is. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the uh, gospel of Christ. They might not see that. That's who he is, and that's who we used to follow. We were sons of the devil. And also verse 3, emphasizing how our flesh, our natural condition, when we were born in the world, we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By our very nature, we wanted to do our own will. We lived according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They were our threefold enemies against us. They were all working against us. So we were lost. We were hopeless and we were powerless. And what does it take? Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. While we were dead, while we were lost, it took God a one-way street, a one-way actor, a one-way action from God toward us. He had to be rich in mercy, show his great love toward us to make us alive. Just like dead Lazarus had to be made alive by Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. In the same way, our dead souls had to be made alive. That's the way in which we were lost and we became found. Not because we found ourselves, 
but because God found us. Furthermore, it says one sinner who repents. Luke 15, 7 and 10 both say over one sinner who repents. That's why these parables are describing repentant sinners. Not unrepentant sinners, but repentant sinners, those who turn away from sin. There have been many examples already in Luke when John the Baptist and others were preaching repentance, teaching repentance. In John, or excuse me, in Luke 3, in Luke 3, John the Baptist is preaching repentance and saying, you must bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Some people with means ask, what do we do? And he says, share with him who has no food and with, with him who has no clothing. Some tax collectors come and he says, don't collect anything more than what you're supposed to collect. And then some soldiers come who have power to exploit people and he says, don't exploit people, don't oppress them, don't accuse them falsely, be content with your wages. That's repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus is preaching repentance right here in Luke chapter 15. He's saying that embedded in our gospel presentation, in our gospel message, is calling on people to turn away from their sins. We do not condone their sins. We do not superficially discuss their sins. We do not say that they are fine people, good people, swell people, genuine people, wonderful people. We don't call them that when we have not addressed their sins. We have to address their sins. Call them to turn away from their sins. In Acts 2, 38, when Peter, the apostle, was preaching, the people asked him, what should we do? Sirs, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. He called on them to repent. In chapter 3, verse 19, Peter also says, repent. In 3.19, in 5.31, they rejoice, the disciples rejoice, that God is granting repentance to Israel. Repentance to Israel. Even in, in Acts eleven eighteen, repentance not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles. So then, or well then, God has also granted the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. They know that even Gentiles need to repent. This is what Paul preached in Athens, Acts 17, 30 to 31. Acts 17, 30 to 31. Paul, to a bunch of strangers, he knows none of them. He's preaching to a crowd of, of philosophers, a, a crowd of scholars and sophists who think that their own mind is the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth. He's preaching to them and he says that they ought to, uh, he, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Repent. They must also repent of their evil philosophies, of their evil thoughts, of their evil writings, of their evil conduct, of everything that's evil in them. They must turn away from it. And Acts 20, 21, it says that Paul says consistently declaring to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They must repent toward God. God is a holy God. Repent, confess sins to him, and turn away from them. Both initial repentance and regular daily repentance. That's what's required of everyone whenever they hear the gospel. Turn from sin 
and cling to God's righteousness, and also faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So turning away from sin, and positively faith in Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And also, when Paul the Apostle was before the magistrate, the Roman magistrate, he did not shrink back from preaching repentance even to this high official in the Roman government. He says in Acts 26, 20, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. They must repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That means high officials, uh, Syrians, Jews, those in Judea, and Gentiles all around the world. It doesn't matter who you are. You must repent of sin. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us not to be self-righteous, not to consider ourselves above repentance, and not to accuse God of being gracious and merciful to repentant sinners. But we all should be repentant sinners. Not only initial repentance at the time of our conversion, but regular daily repentance. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.